Oil exports from Russia were thought to be down. We know now that they're up since the beginning of the war. And the reason is that it's exporting more into India, Pakistan, and China. In this podcast, we typically speak with policymakers, journalists, economists, elected officials, and think tank scholars and analysts, often about world events and geopolitical trends. Well, today we're going to do something a little different. We talk to a practitioner, someone building what was just a few years ago an Israeli startup, and it's now a global enterprise. Now, when I was just in Israel last week, I sat down with an entrepreneur and former naval officer who has built a company that's had to navigate the twin crises of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the maritime implications of cracks in global supply chains, especially around China. Ami Daniel comes to these crises as the co-founder and CEO of Winward, a maritime data analytics and artificial intelligence company bringing transparency to what is perhaps the largest, carrying 90% of the world's trade, but least understood and until now, most opaque part of the global economy. Ami also brings his perspective as a former naval officer serving in the Middle East. So he talks to us about what he's learning and seeing through his unique lens into these two crises, Russia-Ukraine and broken supply chains from COVID. So from Tel Aviv, this is Call Me Back. And I am pleased to welcome my friend, Ami Danielle, to the podcast, you should actually be welcoming me because I'm in Israel. You're not in the United States, but it's good to be with you in person. Welcome to Israel, Dan Senor. Thank you. It's uh, here we are at the Startup Nation Central Studio. It's pretty uh, flashy. It's flashy. It's cool. It's, it's cool. Legit. You know the on-air sign, and you know, and we're in the Startup Nation Central headquarters. It is. Uh, I, I, I encourage more pod, my fellow podcasters to come here and pod. Um, okay, so Ami, we've got a lot to discuss. Yep. Uh, before we get into the current geopolitical hotspots, which are, um, you know, front of mind, I just want to rewind the tape a little bit on you and your life. So you finished, graduated high school, and went into the military in what year? So 2002. 2002. Okay, so you go into the military. and you. I go- feel old now by saying that. You don't have to feel old because I won't tell you how old I am. Okay. It's older than you. So 2002, you join not Sayyid Maktal, one of the uh, elite infantry units, not uh, the paratroopers, not a tank unit, not uh, one of the obvious high-tech units like Shmona Matayim, 8200 or Talpiot. You join the Navy which is not a track we hear a lot about in terms of young Israelis going into. So did you want to go into the Navy? Yeah, listen, so by the way, from, a, from a, an 18-year-old Israeli perspective guy, actually all of these units are um, the alternatives you would consider. So a, a, the top guys and, and ladies, obviously, would look at Shmona Matayim, which mm-hmm. I looked at as well. Which is 8200. 8200, sorry about that. Um, being, a, being a fighter pilot, mm-hmm. uh, going to Sayeret Matkal, it's called Sheva Shesh, yeah. or uh, the, the commando, or becoming a naval officer. It's exactly the same track with exactly the same people. 
And and as much demand, people want to be yeah, enabled. It's, it's considered top five. The thing is, it's very it's very small community. Uh -huh. So you have like thirty new officers. I would reckon every year, mm -hmm. maybe forty. Mm -hmm. So it ends up as a very small amount of people actually doing that. Uh, I think the CEO of Outbrain, uh, uh, which is a, an Israeli company traded in, in Nasdaq, is ex Navy. Mm -hmm. uh, Neil Zohar, which is the COO of Wix, is is ex Navy. They're both uh, ex Naval officers, as well. I, I know many others. Uh, the CEO of Tesla Israel, Adigi, is, she's a good friend of mine. She's ex Navy. Um, I, I think it's um, I think it's something that was in front of mind because uh, eighty two hundred was was the top, I think. But in the last whatever, five, six years, you have a bunch of ex-Naval officers, founders. Aleph, one of our venture investors, I think, who introduced us as well, yeah. has, I think, five or six other companies at least, which all their founders are, uh, uh, are ex-Navy. I can name Daisy, two founders, ex-Navy, Wibbits, ex-Navy. So it's becoming more and more relevant. And what did you do in the Navy? I was a Naval officer. Uh, I was serving as <coughs> a, what's called tactical warfare officer. It means that there's a command information center. It's the guy running it, basically. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, I wouldn't say claim to fame because it's maybe claim to blame. Uh, I was um, the tactical officer on board the INS Khanit, which was a corvette that got hit from a Hezbollah missile July 14th, 2006, 8.42 p.m., uh, which is, I think, the last time that happened uh, before the Moskva, the Russian vessel who got hit by a missile and drowned. Was that during the... Israel-Lebanon War of 2006? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. This is like day three of the war, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think since then, the, the next time it happened, it's now when the Moskva just uh, drowned. So within, within the Navy circles, it's a very known event because this happens once 20 or every 20 or 30 years. And it's really a, uh, a defining moment for you as a human being. The fact that you're on a vessel, suddenly you're hit by a missile, you know, four people dead, 12 wounded, eight and a half hours of fire. You're on this while this I'm is on, happening. I'm on this. I'm running the CIC. Um, CIC the, is? Uh, Command Information Center. Uh, there is uh, the fog of war. Mm -hmm. So you don't really know who's who and who's where. All the radars are down and they're up again. Uh, you know, there's communication saying we're firing more missiles. They are, they're not. They're, you get towed away. It's like a big, big, big event. And how long was the event? How long did this happen? Uh, it took 10 hours. Mm -hmm. So because the fire was there, so we were very close to shore, about 15 kilometers from shore. It's like eight miles. Um, then when the missile hit us, uh, by the way, another vessel got hit mm -hmm. and drowned, the merchant mm -hmm. uh, vessel, a dry bulk vessel. Um, when a missile hit us, it had still a lot of uh, fuel in it. So actually the fire is a fire driven by the fuel in the missile. And it took like eight hours to take it, uh, uh, to take it out completely. So it's a very, very big event. And how old were you at this time? 21 and a half or I just, so. I just think people don't appreciate when I, when I describe the kind of experience that yeah. young Israelis get across the board, all income, socioeconomic strata, all academic backgrounds. The fact that there is, Eric Schmidt gave us this great line mm -hmm. when working on the f first book. He says, you take the average Israeli 25-year-old and you put him, him or her up against their peers anywhere in the world, any day of the week, Google will probably want to hire the Israeli 25-year-old because of these kinds of experiences and leadership experience and sort of the crucible for, you know, for, for management and, and leadership challenges. You just don't get that in most other parts of the world. 
you don't, I think you get a, uh, other things, obviously, in Silicon Valley and other places, but absolutely, I agree with you in terms of becoming an adult and what does it mean for you and who are you and the repercussions of your actions. Absolutely, I think even more so in extreme situations because I know a lot of people were in the Navy, nothing happened, you know, like the day-to-day operations, they're, you know, obviously, you know, they're great guys, but really being like in a, in a life-changing event where it is up to luck or God, you decide. Uh, the fact that I'm alive today, um, it's definitely not skill because the, we could have been blown up completely. And you, so you, after how many years did you leave the Navy? So I lived in the Navy after six and a half years. Uh, when I'm in the Navy, I meet my co-founder, Matan. He, we, 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 we fought together. So Matan, Matan is also a naval officer. Matan is also, my co-founder yeah. is also a naval officer. And actually in the last year or so when I'm in the Navy, we have this new shiny thing uh, called automatic um, information system or identification system called AIS that ship starts transmitting locations, not Navy vessels, but dry bulk vessels, tanker vessels, uh, uh, container vessels, and so on and so forth. And I'm there in the Navy saying to the other guys, this is going to be big. Okay, we need to figure out what to do with this. So explain. So just just let's slow it down. So what what is the it, and why did you think it was going to be so big? So in the Navy, whatever, 15 years ago, you would have sailed in the open sea, and you would have seen a blip on your radar, which means something is there. And Meaning some... Ki- some ship. Some vessels. Some ship. Yeah, yeah. You're, 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 you know, sailing in the ocean. Yeah. You're seeing the radar, like in the movies, going around yeah. and saying, yeah. blip, yeah. blip, Right, blip. so something's there. Something's there. And you have no idea what's there. And you start all this process. Uh, what does the electronic warfare say? What do we see from the bridge? What do we see in the binoculars? Uh, did somebody else see it? Did some other ship sail next to it? It's like a fuss, right? And then 2007, 2008, Suddenly, this automatic identification system comes along, and you see who's there. You so, see. so it's a so you so you get like a code. You get a co- you get the name actually. You okay. actually you actually get the name. So you don't just see the blip. Now you can see a blip with a, a code or name. Yes, that tells you what out of the box it says who it is. So it's not just a blip. It's a blip with who is it and where is it going. So you could say I'm hello. I'm a tanker named Dan. Uh, motor vessel then, and I'm going to Cyprus, and I'll be there in five hours. And that information is coming from who? From the vessel itself. So, okay. it's, a, so it's a safety protocol that all the vessels have to transmit to prevent collisions. But it's getting into the Navy. Okay. And then it's starting to be picked up by satellites. Mm-hmm. So now it's not just from picked up from a vessel to a vessel, but also by a satellite globally of what every vessel is transmitting. And who controls those satellites? Private companies. Okay. They sell that information. Okay. And we're leaving the Navy at this time, and I'm and thinking- what year is this again? 2009 Okay, so you're leaving, you, you and Matan are leaving the Navy. 2009, we sit together and say, well, what could this mean, and what we, could we do with it? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there are new types of satellites, and we're like, we can bring visibility to the ocean. Okay, but at this point, it, it is basically air traffic for maritime, right? Yes. That's what, that before you seize, see an opportunity, what this is providing is the equivalent of the way any air traffic controller anywhere, say, in the United States where I live, any, any plane in or near its space, they can yep. identify who that plane is, where it's coming from, where it's going. So now this exists for the first time yep. for the sea. Yes, 
However, it's amazing, by the way, this didn't exist before. I agree. However, and we'll talk about amazing and, yeah. and talk about Shanghai and talk about Shenzhen and talk about yeah. all these things. Yeah. However, I think what's even more amazing and you can see is that 90% of the world's trade, which is about 14 trillion or so, is going through ships. And still today in 2022. So you just pause that because even with all the tech and dot com and software and all the ways we think about commerce transacting, 90% of our economy moves on the sea. Yes. It's an extraordinary statistic. And last, by the way, I'll give you another statistic. Um, last year, Maersk was more profitable than Amazon. And most of the people listening to this podcast wouldn't even know that. Wow. So, and the reason is, by the way, that 90% is, is transported by sea. It's very simple. It's cheaper. By the way, it's also more carbon efficient. So when you go to Amazon and you order a notebook, a pen, whatever, and it comes to you like that, it comes on air freight, which is why predominantly, which is why it's very expensive, which is why you're willing and unwilling to pay six bucks more uh, per whatever, anything. And they have their own warehouses. However, if you're a what's called shipper, which is a cargo owner, in, in other words, Walmart, Adidas, Nike, all your supply chains are built on ocean freight. And fast forward the last two years, I think we've seen what we, my co-founder and I, built 10 years ago to a large extent, I wouldn't say wasn't needed. I would say wasn't very needed for many years because nobody cared. And I'll give an example, an Israeli example, by the way. Zim, the Israeli liner. Israeli shipping company. Shipping company, yeah. container line, okay? Yeah. Went broke five years ago. It printed money last year, 4.5 billion of profit. But it went broke five years ago. What's the difference? Did Zim get better? I'm sure it did get better but it didn't, didn't get better to that extent. The answer is the world changed. And I think Michael Eisenberg, the guy who introduced this once. Uh, Mike Eisenberg, who has been a guest on this podcast. Oh, really? He's an Israeli venture capitalist for our listeners uh, from Aleph VC. Michael's listening to this and his ears are burning. Okay, so uh, go ahead. And so he's, on, he's on the middest list, by the way, okay. consistently. He taught me a, a, good, a good sentence for venture capital investing and for building companies. Cards get turned. So uh, uh, it means in this case, when we built the company, it was great for a lot of years. The take up was predominantly from governments. For your company. For our company, because all the rest of the people didn't really want visibility. We went to commodity traders. Okay, so just, hold on, because I just don't, so, so, so just explain briefly the, the service and product you were offering sure. to customers when you built this company. So our thesis was very simple. We could bring visibility across the oceans to what ships are doing. It's a very broad statement. Um, and we went with that broad statement to insurance companies, to traders, to shipping companies, to governments, to banks, basically to everybody. And, we're, and you were saying for the first time, we can give you real visibility. Yep. And, uh, and explain where artificial intelligence fit into this solution. Predictions. I got to say, candidly, when we built a company, we didn't do AI. Mm -hmm. So we were not really into AI. It still was visibility. AI is... After you gather the data and you have a lot of data and you have analytics on it, AI is, can I predict stuff? And we'll talk about it. Okay. Because today we do hardcore AI. Okay. But back then was about visibility. So I think what we've seen in the first, whatever, six, seven years of the company, most of the take-up was from governments who said, whoa, these bad guys have a way to, to 
smuggle drugs, do bad things across the oceans. This company can help us uh, catch them. Smuggle drugs, move, do dark shipments of dark commodities. Ship, or, you know, oil. Let's look at uh, uh, um, it, the uh, DPRKs, and this is this show is about geopolitics. So mm-hmm. let me touch upon that a bit. Mm-hmm. So you have the G- JCPOA with Iran, which I know you discussed before yep. with previous guests. So this is the Iran deal of 2015. Indeed, yep. uh, which, is, which is limiting the export of oil. Uh, uh, and you have Venezuela and the uh, sanctions on PDVSA, mm-hmm. which is, are limiting them from selling oil to some extent, mm-hmm. to most extent. And you have the sanctions on DPRK. Uh, and by the way, you have something on Myanmar, by the way. It's not very well spoken, but you do have Myanmar. And suddenly you have Belarus and now Russia. So the way people... Uh, circumvent sanctions to a large extent. And actually, the Trump administration uh, um, was very adamant about that and did a very good job in closing that loop from the regulatory perspective. They were the first ones in May 2022, nine years after we built a company, mm-hmm. to define something that's called deceptive shipping practices, which is, in other words, how do people circumvent sanctions uh, of goods transported through the oceans. They turn off transmissions deliberately. They do ship-to-ship transfers. They change the name. Like there's a, a famous movie by Nicolas Cage, uh, uh, the uh, uh, um, uh, Lord of War, I think, I believe that was, where he exports uh, uh, drugs in, in a vessel and they paint over the name and paint over a new name. But that is how people do that. So 2020, the, dr- the Trump administration uh, comes out with this with this regulation that starts creating a lot of traction on our side. People like BP and Shell and banks like OCBC, HSBC, all our customers start actually saying, well, we can do business with anybody. We need to do due diligence on who's traveling the oceans. And then COVID happens. And when COVID happens, supply chain crumble. And we need to talk about that. Before you get to that, yep. just get back to the predictions piece. Yep. So when did you, when did you and Matan and your team say, wow, there's this thing called artificial intelligence. And so mm-hmm. we are now, you identify this, this innovation in terms of effectively an air traffic control mm-hmm. capability for maritime, for the maritime economy. Mm-hmm. And then and then you say, we could be part of that air traffic control, at least mm-hmm. have visibility into it. Yep. And then AI comes in and, and you say, now we can take what, like what can you do with the AI? You say it's, it's all, it becomes predict, predictions. So it, so it starts with a small step. By the way, AI, there's a difference between ML and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, to our machine, list, machine learning and, and artificial to, to our listeners, I think it's really important that that difference. I think a lot of people say AI, not many people actually do AI. So it's a branch of, of machine learning, but it's a more advanced branch. So basically, we've been doing machine learning for years. So, so we started by bringing machine learning into predictions for marine insurance. It was three, four years ago. And we helped marine insurance companies, which still work with us, many of them like SCORE or Guard, um, and Travelers, which is a U.S. company, mm-hmm. um, to we help them predict the propensity or the probability of a vessel to have an accident. That's machine learning. That's great. So it means you have a risk score, like a credit score for every vessel in the world, and they price their policies based on that. But that's not a hugely big market. By the way, a lot of the pushback from users in the marine insurance market was, okay, the machine tells me three, why? And when you do machine learning, and even especially when you do AI or deep learning, which is another word for Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence, it's a black box. So explainability is not the, the, the great, you know, the greatest feature of artificial intelligence. It gives you great output, but mm-hmm. not necessarily explainability. But then in the last couple of years, really artificial intelligence in the world, by the way, technologies like GPUs and Amazon, 
um, uh, and uh, uh, the availability of, availability of TensorFlow from Google, and a lot of knowledge in Israel of people who used to work for Microsoft or in other companies which really took AI to production are coming back to Israel, and now we're seeing this huge need with a crunch in the supply chains. And I have to say, when COVID started, it made me and other people, obviously, but also me as well, and our CFO and all executive team, take a step back and think about life. Because it wasn't about, could we just do business? It's, what business are we in? Mm -hmm. Okay, great, we have this visibility, we have governments, we have marine insurance companies, we have traders, but could we go bigger? That defining moment when you're staying home, you can't leave mm -hmm. and you need to think. And for some reason, you know, it's uh, uh, obviously <laughs> Warren Buffett is basically maybe the greatest example of that, of, you know, the Oracle of Omaha that stays in and thinks. And we stayed in thought. And then we came up, obviously, with two main areas where we now apply AI, which I think are revolutionary. So one is supply chain. Uh, and I think it's all connected. This is, again, a podcast about geopolitics. So I think geopolitic, geopol geopolitics and supply chain are closely connected. Um, and maybe you want to double click on that. But if you think about what's happening with Russia mm -hmm. and with, with China, I think they're both really influential on the global supply chain. Before, you, before we get to 2020 and 2021, when you were building this company over the previous decade, mm -hmm. did you ever imagine there would be this moment for your company and obviously for the mm -hmm. world where we have a, a pandemic that puts huge pressure on supply chains and we would have a land war in Europe, the first one in, mm -hmm. you know, the first major land war mm -hmm. in Europe in 70 years, mm -hmm. all happening at the same time, which obviously has direct implications for what you do. But mm -hmm. could you have, like, did you guys, obviously you couldn't have predicted this thing or that thing, but just predicted something as, as so earth shattering as those two events happening at the same time effectively? No. However, our chairman, Lord Brown, taught me a good lesson that says, the world always gets more complicated, not less complicated. And it's accelerating in it, its complexity. So, and I think everybody who lives in the world can see that. Everything is happening much more quickly for us mm -hmm. as human beings. Look at inflation. Right. Inflation is rising really quickly now, mm -hmm. and people are starting to react really quickly. So um, I couldn't imagine them. However, I can tell you, and actually it's a good reference to my Navy days. So in the second day of the war between Ukraine and Russia, and by the way, I think it's important to talk about the human element for a second. We have 10 employees in Ukraine. Uh, every podcast, every time I speak about this, I mention it. I think from the human perspective, it's a tragedy. These are normal dudes. You know, they have nothing to do with politics. Mm -hmm. They get paid money to write code. That's it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't, they're not fighting. They don't want to die. Mm -hmm. They have babies. Mm -hmm. And they fled some of them to Moldova, some of them to Bulgaria, some of them to Lviv in Western Ukraine. Mm -hmm. One of them stayed in, stayed in Cherniv. And, and I wow. spoke to him uh, a couple of days ago and he said that it was basically like living in the Stone Age. So when you ask him, how, you know, how did you go through it? He says, we had no convenience. We had no water and no food. So I just want to mention that to everybody yeah. out there because it's nice to talk about geopolitics, but at the end of the day, there are absolutely normal when people. When you see these images out of, out of these cities in Ukraine and you change them from color to black and white. Yep. It literally could look like World War II yeah. with throngs of people cr crushing into train stations yep. trying to get out, millions of people, refugees trying to yep. get into Poland, 
theaters, schools, hospitals being bombed to smithereens. It literally looks like from another century. So now, now let's talk about what you're seeing. What have you learned through the lens that you have that is happening? Let's start with, with Russia and Ukraine, and then we'll get to the pandemic in China. What, what, what are you learning and seeing that, that we may not see? Sure. So first of all, I have to say, uh, people think of them as, as, as two different events. I think they're one and the same. Because from the global supply chain perspective, it's two events converging and impacting the trade and the shipping. Um, so I think that's a very important point. So, so first of all, let's take a step back. Russia and Ukraine are not big exporters of containerized goods. Mm -hmm. uh, they're absolutely big. Uh, Ukraine is a big exporter of, of wheat, which I think is one of the biggest impacts on, on the global food prices. Russia is obviously an energy powerhouse um, uh, for Russian gas and Russian oil. I think that's that's really material. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I think these are uh, uh, big events. Now, what we're seeing is, first of all, since the, the, the war started, um, effectively, the trade in Ukraine has ground to a halt. And we've seen about 20% increase in the trade of Romania and Bulgaria, which are in the western shores of the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. And our expectations, our understanding is just goods being exported there. The same events we're seeing in the Baltic. Mm -hmm. So in the Baltic, less uh, uh, trade is going into Russia, more is going into the neighboring And just countries. for our so the Baltic Sea encircles Russia, Poland, Sweden, Finland, Estonia. Yep. Right, I'm missing Lithuania and Latvia. Yep. yep. Okay. And so, and so suddenly there's far less trade in the Baltic Sea, or far, far fewer ships in the yep. Baltic Sea going into Russia, and they're increasing in all these other places. Yes. Why does that matter? So first of all, it matters because if you want to look at trade flows, and everybody looks at different for trade flows, trade flows, so containerized goods, you've seen the biggest... Uh, liners in the world basically uh, um, take Russia off the map. Maersk, CMA, CGM, one, are not trading with Russia anymore. And I think that is what we're seeing. We're seeing a two-tier world coming into effect on containerized goods, but also on oil. Uh, some of our customers, like BP and Shell, announced they're not going to trade with Russia going forward. Some of the world's biggest uh, uh, trading houses, Vital, for instance, said it, not going to do business with Russia beyond the end of this year because there's a bit of a wind-down period. They, they have long-term con contracts. Um, um, so I think what we're seeing is a two-tiered world in which Russia is continuing to doing business. By the way, oil exports from Russia were thought to be down. We know now that they're up since the beginning of the war. And I, you know, and it's a, it's a crazy phenomenon. And the reason is that it's exporting more into India, Pakistan, and China. And is that well known to decision makers and policymakers around the world, or you're seeing it because you're tracking all these so, ships, so you actually see what's act, what's actually moving? So we're seeing what's actually moving. We're also publishing it in our in our blog, and we have about 250 journalists uh, uh, subscribe to that. I would expect policy uh, makers to know that. Uh, I don't think that's a secret. However, what I, I think is, um, I think a lot of the policymakers right now are thinking week by week. And we're not involved, obviously, in the decision-making. We're a mm -hmm. tech company. So we can take a step back and showing, tell you where this leads. And I think this is leading towards a two-tier world. I know some of our customers, shipping companies, who've been offered eight to ten times the rates to pick up and what's called lifting cargoes out of Russia. 10 times the money. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that Russia really needs to export oil. And the, the way it works with, with energy and oil is you can't just shut it off. 
if you shut off a well, you can't just start it the day after. Everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to export oil somewhere. They're selling the crude at a 28 to $30 discount, um, oil crude, for instance. Um, and I think that has a very big impact. So some of these ship owners, traders, will continue to do business with Russia, and some of them won't. And I suspect that this is having a broader effect in the world of ESG, and we should talk about that. ESG used to be, are you good for the environment? Actually, now I think people are like Nike, who pulled out of Russia, or Apple pulled out of Russia, are thinking of ESG as, who am I? What will my customers think of me? Mm-hmm. Where am I standing on the lines of history? And some companies like Shell, you know, in the Second World War, I had heard this from Shell themselves, Shell did not take a stand. They provided fuel to both sides. This is the first time ever Shell has taken any side. Switzerland has taken sanctions on Russia. It has never happened. Singapore, it has never happened. So I think we're really seeing a defining moment in life right now. Um, but I'm not sure, personally, it leads to stopping Russia from doing it because their economy is not, you know, they're still exporting oil and gas to India, Pakistan, and China. So until somebody shuts down uh, 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 that faucet and these lines, not sure what's the effect. Okay. And now let's talk about the what China supply chains um, and and what you are seeing, I know you've written a lot about Shenzhen. Um, so, and the pressure from from the zero COVID tolerance policy in China and the implications for what it means for China doing maritime business with the world. Sure. So first of all, uh, when we talk about ships, I think it's important to understand they're a part of the chain, they're not all of the chain. So the way this goes for our listeners um, is you have somebody, um, um, you have somebody exporting something, the, uh, the truck picks up the container out of the, um, uh, out of the storage and it takes up, you, you need to choose a liner, you need to choose Zim or Maersk for instance, and then you choose that, they pick up that container of that line and they take it from the storage area, they take you it to your factory or your, your whatever storage, they put your cargo in that, container and then they drive the box to the port, they put it into the gate, into the ship and then it goes out. So China has a manufacturing perspective, but also an exporting perspective. And I think the lockdowns are affecting both. Mm. So people can uh, export less, but they can also manufacture less, if that makes sense. Meaning China. Yes. I know. I'm meaning companies uh, uh, that have factories in China. Okay. So, so, what what are the implications then going forward? You talked about ru- with Russia, we're seeing like a two-tiered system setting in. Mm-hmm. That's a long-term trend that you see locking in. Is there a long-term trend coming out of the supply chain crisis? So, okay, y- yes. So, so first of all, right now we're seeing 200% more container vessels, i.e. twice, uh, uh, waiting outside of Chinese ports versus February. Okay? So lockdown is China, lockdowns in China doubled the congestion outside the ports. So as we speak, one out of five container vessels in the world is stuck in congestion. Let me just repeat that. One out of five container vessels in the world is stuck outside of port because of congestion. And in China represents almost 28% of all vessels waiting outside ports. So absolutely it's having an effect. But I think you should also think about it 
as a butterfly effect. So the fact that there are more people waiting outside in China means there's absolutely going to be an effect on LALB, for instance, in the U.S., uh, uh, Long Beach and Los Angeles, or Rotterdam and other places. And that's where then AI really comes into the picture because I think the supply chain problem, which we saw with AI, like the uh, uh, carbon emissions problem for vessels, are things humans can't really solve in their head. And this, this is where I've learned to turn to AI. There are problems which, too, which have too many factors of complexity, and congestion supply chain is one of them. Uh, and I think what we've done is we've built AI that is able to predict when a cargo will, a container or a vessel will come into the port or will be unloaded mm -hmm. on a global scale. So all the vessels, all the world, all the time, up to 30 days out. Um, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know if any other organization had really solved this problem um, because it is humongous and it, it, it influences a million organizations around the world. And it only came about in the last two years. You didn't have that two years ago. Nobody cared. There wasn't the demand or the freight rates. Freight rates are up 15 times uh, for containers over the last two years. And reliability is down from 80% to 30%. So it has never been less reliable to ship a cargo and hasn't been ever more expensive to ship a cargo, if that makes sense. Yes, which has its own infl inflationary pressure. Sure. Okay. I want to switch gears before we wrap. You run a startup, what is effectively a startup. Yep. We are watching right now what looks like some kind of correction shakeup in the tech markets. Uh, we, we all cite this statistic, something like 50% of the companies on NASDAQ have lost mm -hmm. something like 50% of their value mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the last few months. Mm -hmm. you're, you're on the front lines of, of building a startup. You're in an ecosystem of a lot of mm -hmm. startups. Israel has the highest density of startups in the world. So you are in this world. You're spending time with a lot of entrepreneurs. Yep. What is, what is the implication for people, young entrepreneurs like you building companies? So I got to say, I think that long term, I don't think it matters because so much riches have been created and so much capital here in Israel, for instance, over the last five years. People look at it, I think, as a correction um, from in insane to really, really big, but it's still really big mm -hmm. from, the, from the entrepreneur perspective. Actually, from the employee perspective, there is a difference, I think, um, because I know many people who are on paper very rich but in reality, not very rich. Um, so, so I think the lesson is, I don't think there are shortcuts. And actually, we've been offered, we went public in London in December, uh, which is very out of the ordinary because this company is not, unfortunately, uh, it's not cookie cutter. I'm saying unfortunately because it's much easier running a company which is cookie cutter. Um, and we're, we're, I think we're okay because the London market is very different than NASDAQ. Um, but I understand that... Uh, um, I understand that to build a company, you need to create long-term value on long-term revenues. And actually, the flip side of what you just said is people are expecting NASDAQ companies to be profitable faster, and they're, they're, they, they're running away from companies who are going to lose money forever. So I think that's part of that correction. So it's not just correction in tech. It's correction in loss, big, big, uh, uh, big deal loss-making tech. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is there are no shortcuts. People have done SPAC. We've been offered to do a SPAC before. We've walked away from it because I didn't think it was a good deal. And 
I think doing a SPAC for a company which is IP already has $100 million revenues and growing quickly, that's great. Doing a SPAC for a company with $300,000 of revenues, which was never meant to be public in the first place, mm-hmm. that's not a good idea. So, so I think in building a company, I'm not sure there are many shortcuts uh, about that. I, I do want to, and I think it's, I've been, in, I read a lot and I think, uh, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I think for us, what this means is focus and execution. We have the capital we need in the bank. I think we now have the brand, we have the board, we have the tech. Now it's about execution, execution, execution. I'd like to recommend a book, um, Amp It Up by Frank Slootman. I thought you were going to recommend Startup Nation. You're, you're running the show. You already recommended Startup right, Nation. Right. No, but, but really as a founder, I think. What's the um, book called? Amp it up. Oh, amp it up. Okay, got by, it. Uh, by uh, Frank Slootman, the chairman CEO of Snowflake. And I think when, and people don't talk enough about that, but building a company, there's a difference between a founder and a CEO. Some founders are also CEOs. Um, I think it, I only understood what it means it means to be CEO in the last three or four years. And I'm fortunate to have you know, a mentor and a coach in the form of our chairman, um, uh, Lord Brown, but I would recommend really encourage a lot of entrepreneurs which are Lord Brown you should say for his full name so people know he's the, the former Lord Brown of Mattingly or the right the honorable the Lord Brown of Mattingly John Brown he was yes. CEO of BP CEO of BP right and uh, he, he was he, he was invested into our board became mm-hmm. our chairman and I'm fortunate to have him as my mentor because making that transition from a founder entrepreneur to a CEO is not such an easy feat and I believe the CEOs are the gra- glass ceilings of the company so you need to grow faster than anybody else and learn faster than anybody else and execute better than anybody else and flip the switch like LeBron James used to do before playoffs. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, uh, better than anybody else. And I think uh, this book I'm reading from Frank Slootman really makes a difference. Wow. We'll leave it there. You, you squeezed in uh, a book recommendation, a dig on LeBron James for not making the playoffs, by the way, the Brooklyn Nets just got swept out. Oh, of course. We so can, we can talk about that. Kyrie, my man. Uh, yeah, heartbreaking. And Katie. And you also uh, shoehorned in a, an incredible pop culture reference, which was the Nicolas Cage movie from 2005, which is the first time anyone has referenced that movie See? on this podcast. Lord of War? Yep. Lord of Yeah, yeah. So that was impressive. Thank you. We will put the book in the show notes. Ami, Danielle, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's our show for today. To follow Ami Danielle, he's on Twitter at Ami Danielle One. That's A M I D A N I E L and the number one. You can also go to his website, WNWD.com. WNWD is short for Winward. I'm a big fan of Ami's, so much so that in a personal capacity, I was an early investor in him and Matan as they were building Winward. I have no involvement in the operations of the company, but just want to provide the full disclosure. Call Me Back is produced by Lon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. <laughs>